Well, good morning to you. It's good to see y'all today. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to start uh, by talking a little bit about current events. So um, it, we're going to be in Genesis 3, but before we get into that, Genesis 3 verse 15, I wanted to share with you uh, uh, just some thoughts I've had about something that's going on in the news right now. Uh, so some of you know that the most frequently repeated verse in the Bible, or the most frequently committed, uh, repeated command in the Bible is, fear not. And I want you to know that doesn't mean that it's a sin to be afraid. It doesn't mean it's a sin to feel the emotion of fear. After all, if, if that was a sin, then Jesus would have sinned in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, in the garden, prayed with his face to the ground, with blood dripping from his head because he was, he was in such anguish that he, he literally, his capillaries burst, praying, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Jesus felt intense fear, fear like none of us has ever, have, have ever felt, and yet he did not sin because in spite of his fear, he got up and he went to the cross. He did what needed to be done. So, it's not a sin to feel afraid. It's a sin to let fear control you. It's a sin to let fear stop you from doing the will of God and accomplishing the will of God uh, in your life. And, and I say all that because we're watching the news these days, and we, we hear about coronavirus, and we hear about uh, a disease that no one's ever seen before that we don't have a cure for. And so there's the, there's the likelihood, the possibility that there's going to be hysteria. And, and what I want you to understand is we as the people of God have a responsibility before God and before our fellow people to exhibit peace in the midst of chaos, to exhibit a sense of calm and a knowledge that God is in control. Again, it doesn't mean it's wrong for you to feel afraid, but what do you do with that fear? Rodney Stark wrote a book uh, several years ago called The Rise of Christianity. Rodney Stark is not an evangelical Christian. He's a sociologist. He works in academia. He wanted to study how is it that Christianity, against all the odds, became the dominant world religion. In fact, conquered the Roman Empire in a sense, became more powerful even than Rome. How did that even happen? And one of his conclusions was it happened because the Christians of those days just did not have fear in charge of them like the rest of the world did. Government would come down upon them in persecution and martyrdom. They didn't care. They would still sing the praises of Christ. They would still spread the message, even though they might die as a result. Even more so, epidemics in those days would sweep across whole cities, would, would wipe out thousands of people. No one really knew what caused disease back then. And so when a city, an outbreak would, would, would break out in a city, people would flee for the hills. They would just run away. They'd leave family members behind. They just All they knew was, here's where people are dying. We need to get away. But the Christians would stay, and they would take care of those who were sick, including uh, people who weren't Christians, pagans who were sick, and nurse them back to health or watch them hold their hand while they died. And, and people looked at that, and they said, where does this courage, this faith, this hope come from? And it turned a lot of people to a place where they were willing to hear the gospel for the first time and understand the love of Christ. And that's our calling. We are called to be people of courage and faith. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be concerned. I'm not saying that we just ignore it. I'm saying, turn off the news. I'm saying, don't be obsessed with this. I'm saying, for goodness sakes, don't believe everything you hear. Listen to your doctor. Listen to medical professionals. Listen to the CDC. Fact check things that people come up to you and say, hey, I heard this. Well, fact check it. There are, there are websites you can use to fact check anything you hear. If you don't know how to use one of those, talk to your doctor. I'm sure he'll be, he'll be glad to tell you the truth. But most of all, pray. 
You see, we as Christians in modern times haven't really done a good job of this. Some of you are old enough to remember the mid-80s when AIDS was first becoming big news, and there were people dying, and it was terrifying. And Christians weren't more scared than other people, but we weren't less afraid. We didn't exhibit the kind of courage, the kind of faith that we should have. What if, what if, how would history be different if today, if in those days, Christians would have been the ones who said, I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to walk. I'm going to drive you to your doctor's appointment. I'm going to pray with you. I don't know what, this is, what is causing this, but I'm going to be there with you when everyone else has turned their backs on you. Would our relationship with the homosexual community be different? Would we be more able to share the gospel with them than we are today? Would our, would our credibility in society be different? Absolutely. Much different scenario, but in, in the days leading up to the year 2000, some of you are old enough to remember the Y2K scare. Everybody thought the computers were all going to shut down, and so our cars were going to wreck, and our, our grocery stores were going to collapse, and our economy would just be devastated. And, and again, Christians were not any less hysterical. I knew Christians who talked about, we need to buy dairy cattle, so we'll have a source of milk when HEB is no more. I mean, we were just, we went nuts. And so this time, I'm not saying this is going to be like either one of those scenarios. I don't know what's going to happen. I have faith that because we now understand a lot more about virology and, and infection, I, I think this is going to be completely different. I'm not worried. But if you do get worried in the days ahead, don't feel bad about that. Just pray to God and say, Lord, help me to show courage. Help me to show faith in you. Pray that the church of God would rise up and be the church of God that the people of our community need to see. That's all. Can we do that? Can we pray toward that end, that God would prepare us for whatever comes, that we would represent Him well in times of fear and uncertainty? Can we do that? Can you agree with me on that? Thank you. All right, so let's talk about Genesis 3, and somehow I have misplaced my notes, so this is going to be interesting. I'm going to be looking at the board because I'm going to be quoting a lot of Scripture, and y'all, this may shock you. This may really disappoint you. I don't have the whole Bible memorized yet, Okay. So the, the nice little sheet that I had all those notes written down on is somehow gone. It's been raptured or something. So we'll see how I do. Genesis 3, verse 15. Uh, we are talking about hope today. We're in a series about God's story and how God is constantly at work redeeming this world. And there is an end to that. There is, there is a day when that will be completed. But what we're talking about today is how in the darkest days of humanity, God kept giving us light, kept giving us hope that something better was coming. So the darkest day of all humanity, the darkest chapter in the entire Bible is Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? Genesis 3 is where uh, the man and the woman, the first two humans, make the worst mistake anyone could possibly make. And yet it's a mistake you and I make all the time. And that is to say, okay, God, you've given me this and this and this. You've given me everything I need, everything I could possibly want, but I demand more. You've given me a perfect life. You've given me perfect, me perfect communion with you. But I want that tree over there. I want that fruit over there that you have not provided. And that's the root of all the issues, all the problems in our world. And you know the story if you've been raised in church. Some of you haven't. But if you've been raised in church or you know the Bible, you know about Adam and Eve and how there was a talking serpent in the garden who tempted them to eat the forbidden fruit. They took the forbidden fruit. And then God said, okay, because you've done this, you've introduced a new element into our perfect creation. Therefore, there is sin. Therefore, there is death. Therefore, there is pain. Therefore, there is a contention between man and woman in marriage. 
But I want you to see, I mean, a dark, dark chapter of the Bible, terrible story, but in the midst of that, there's grace. Some of us miss this detail. So you probably know that the man and the woman, as soon as they'd done this, they realized, wait a second, we don't have clothes. They felt a sense of shame for the first time in their lives. The man looked at the woman and said, wow, you don't have clothes on. That's very wrong. And she looked at him and said, well, you don't have clothes on, and that's way more wrong, okay? And so they were ashamed, and they covered themselves with fig leaves. Now, I've never seen anyone try to cover themselves with fig leaves, thank God. I don't need to see that. But I I can only imagine it does not do the trick. And so God came and said, I will cover you. And he gave them garments made of skin. Now, two things about that. Number one, God should have been angry enough with them to say, you're on your own. But no, he cared enough to cover their shame. Secondly, that meant something had to die. Some animal, we don't know what kind, some animal had to die to provide them with the skin to cover their shame. And that was setting a pattern. God will always be there to cover our shame. God will always do what it takes to lift us up out of our darkness. But even in the midst of that, there's another note of grace that's even greater, and that's what verse 15 is about. Verse 15 is God speaking to the snake who started this whole problem. And He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel." Now, at first glance, that sounds like just a foretelling of the fact that for the rest of time, the rest of human history, there will be an ongoing war between snakes and humans. And we know about this, don't we? I know about it for sure. I grew up in the country, and and I wish I had a dollar for every time when I was a kid that my mom said to me or my brother or both, put shoes on before you go outside. Watch out for those snakes. We had copperheads where I lived. We didn't have a lot of rattlesnakes, but copperheads were a big problem. And, And so she was constantly worried about that. In fact, when I was in college, one night I was on the phone with my mom when my dad was bitten by a copperhead. And I was just home yesterday, and I asked my dad, so does that snake bite still bother you? This has been 30 years. He said, yeah, whenever I stand too long or I've, I've walked too far, I start to ache in that spot where that snake bit me. So, yeah. Another story, uh, we grew up in a very, very small church. One summer, it was time for VBS. The day before vacation Bible school, my, my mom and my brother went to go clean the church and make sure everything was ready for VBS the next day. As they're getting things ready, as they're mowing the yard outside the church, they encountered not one, not two, but six copperheads and killed them all. And they canceled vacation Bible school. They were like, no, 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 we can't. We don't know how many more of these things there are. Now, my brother was a teenager, so he thought it was really fun to run around going, the devil won. You know, we canceled VBS. Thanks a lot. Brother Bill, you you did a good job there. So uh, that's not what verse 15 is about. Yes, there's ongoing warfare between men and snakes, between men and women and snakes. But what's happening here is God is offering us a promise of a future hero. You see, as we, and we place ourselves in the position of people back then, the people of God, as we began to learn more about God and about His world, We discovered that there was, that God was in charge. God is king. God rules. And yet there is another force in the universe, a force of evil, a force that tries to oppose everything God does, a force that hates whatever God loves. And we began to call that force by a personal name. We called it Satan. And the word Satan in Hebrew means the enemy. And Satan, we discovered, was 
incarnate in that snake. In other words, that wasn't just a random talking animal in the garden. That was the devil himself inhabiting the body of that snake, causing that first sin. And so, right here at the beginning, verse 15 is a promise from God that says, someday there will be a hero born of woman, just like us, but he will have something more than we have. He will come and he will crush the head of the enemy. He will destroy evil forever. And so, right at the beginning of time, right at the beginning of our own darkness, we began to hope in the Lord. So, the question you need to answer today is, what is my hope? What is my hope? You see, all of us put our hope in something. And what I mean by hope is that one thing that you say, okay, if even, even if I lose everything else, I have this, I'll be okay. Even if I lose everything else, even if everything else is taken from me, as long as I've got this, I can survive. And for some people, that's their money. That's their wealth and possessions. And they say, listen, as long as I can hang on to what I have, as long as I can continue to live the lifestyle I live now, then I'll be all right. For others, it's status. I've achieved a certain level of status. I've achieved a certain prestige among my neighbors and friends and relatives and coworkers. And as long as people continue to see me that way and think well of me, then I know I can make it. And for some people, it's more of a political ideology. We're in an election year, and so political feelings are, very, are running very high. And there's a lot of fear on the part of some that, well, what if the other side wins? And there's a part on the other uh, of some that, there's a fear on the part of some that, well, what if the side that's in charge now wins? I mean, everybody's feeling fear. As long as my side wins, I think I can manage. And then there are people who put their, their hope in a person. They put their hope in their spouse, as long as I've got her, as long as I've got him, or their potential spouse. If I can just marry her, if I can just marry him, then everything will be great. Or maybe it's our kids. And this is really common for us as parents. As long as my kids are healthy and happy and well-adjusted and successful, and as long as they love me, then I feel validated, then I feel good, and everything, I can survive anything that life throws at me. But be careful what you put your hope in. See, right there at the beginning of humanity, God is saying, hope in the hero that I am sending you. He is the one who will solve your problems. He is the one who will set things right. And as the centuries passed, we began to see more and more information about this hero to come because that's what the Old Testament gives us over and over again. Prophecy after prophecy, giving us a little bit more information, a few more details about the hero that we had put our hope in. So first of all, Genesis 49, verse 10. Thank you. Uh, Genesis 49, verse 10 is a prophecy by Jacob. By this time, he's an old man. He's changed his name to Israel. God changed his name to Israel. He's giving uh, a blessing on each of his 12 sons. The 12 sons of Israel were known as the patriarchs. From them would come the 12 tribes of Israel. So as Jacob, on his deathbed, is blessing his sons, what he's really doing is he's foretelling the future of each of those 12 tribes. And surprisingly, he doesn't give the biggest and best blessing to his favorite son, Joseph, or to his firstborn son, Reuben, but to his son, Judah. And to Judah, here's what he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So in other words, what we know about our hero to come is he'll come from the Jewish tribe of Judah. Then we hear Moses come to us in Deuteronomy 8.15 or 18.25 and say the hero is going to be a prophet like me. He will come and his words won't be the words just of a man. They'll be the words of God himself. And so you better listen when he speaks. 
In 2 Samuel 7, we find out that he's going to be a son of David. He'll come from the kingly line of David, Israel's greatest monarch. Um, Also, in Psalm 2, we find out that he's going to be called an anointed one. That's the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we pronounce Messiah. In Greek, that's Christos, which we say Christ. So he's not just a hero. He's God's anointed. He's a Messiah. In Psalm 110, verse 4, we find out that he's going to be a priest. A priest in in Old Testament times meant the guy who would stand between humans and God and make humans right with their Lord. So he's going to be our king. He's going to be our prophet, but he's also going to be our priest. He's going to make us right with God. As the centuries passed, the information came faster and with greater and greater detail. Micah in Micah 5.2 tells us that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 tells us he's going to inaugurate a new covenant. In other words, there'll be a new agreement between humans and God. And so we won't have to study the intricate Mosaic law and all of its many hundreds of commands and, and, and follow them perfectly. No, we'll have the law of God written on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We'll know right from wrong. We'll be guided. We'll be transformed into His image as we continue to follow Him. But of all of God's prophets, nobody told us more about the hero that was to come than Isaiah. And in Isaiah 49, uh, we, we see Isaiah mentioning a person named the servant of God. We realize that's That's the Messiah himself. Here's what he says about the Messiah, the servant. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this was kind of shocking to us. We thought that our Messiah was for us, for Israel, just us. And the other nations, well, quite frankly, to put it bluntly, they could go to hell for all we cared. Because they weren't God's people, we were. And yet here's Isaiah telling us, no, the Messiah is coming not just to rescue His people, but to rescue all people, all nations. And if we can step out of the sermon for a moment, as people, most of whom don't have any Jewish blood at all, can we just say hallelujah? Can we just say amen? That He's the Savior of all people, of anyone who comes to Him, black, brown, yellow, white, no matter what their background? And then in Isaiah 53, we read stuff that, at the time, we had nothing, no idea what to do with. For hundreds of years, we didn't know what to do with this chapter. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities, upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. Now think about it. We never even heard of crucifixion. We had no idea that our Messiah would have to die for us. We thought He would come and and win victory after victory. Instead, we find out He wins through weakness, not through strength. Through death, not through life. Through defeat, not through victory. We didn't know what to do with that. And then there was silence. For 400 years after the prophet Malachi 
There were no prophetic words at all. No one had a vision from God. No one knew what God was trying to say to us. And so for 400 years, all we had to rely on were the words of the old prophets. And we still hoped, we still hoped and and prayed that we would see the Messiah come. And then one day, like a comet blazing across the night night sky, along comes this this strange character, this barbarian dressed in camel's clothes and camel's fur and, and, and eating, eating bugs and standing out in the wilderness and preaching a, a message of damnation, a message that no one should be attracted to. And yet we're going into the wilderness by the thousands and being baptized in the Jordan River, which is just beyond anything we'd ever considered because baptism back then didn't exist. We had ceremonial cleansing. We had little ritual baths where we would get washed before we went to the temple. And we had places where anybody who wanted to convert from it to Judaism and, and follow our God could go and be cleansed. But now here's John standing out in the wilderness saying, you're all a bunch of sons of snakes. You all need to be baptized because you're all sinners and you need to repent. And you would think we'd go running like crazy from such a message, but instead we all said, yeah, you described me perfectly. And we were being baptized in the Jordan and saying, Lord, please change us. And at the, at the height of his powers, at the height of his following, when he could have easily declared himself Messiah and we all would have rallied around him, he pointed to another man standing in the distance and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we looked at this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and quite frankly, he was not much to look at. And he didn't have the pedigree, and he didn't have the qualifications we were looking for. And he certainly didn't act like the the son of David we thought we would see. He didn't defeat our enemies. Instead, he told us to pray for them. He He didn't rise to the top. In fact, he seemed to relish in spending time with people on the very bottom. But when he spoke, there was no doubt he was speaking the words of God. He was the prophet that Moses foretold. And when he, when he encountered human need, he never walked away without transforming it. Blind people saw, mute people spoke, lame people danced, dead people rose. We knew, we knew this was the one. John was right. We needed him. We didn't need just a hero like we thought. We needed a Savior. We needed Jesus. And then one day, the unthinkable happened. Our own religious leaders, the people we trusted and looked to for guidance, under the cover of darkness where no one was looking, they had him arrested and condemned and handed over to our enemies, the Romans. And by the time we knew what was going on, he was already nailed to a cross, already dying. And as if that's not bad enough, that he was dead and out of the way, he was dead on a cross, on a piece of wood. And Numbers, the book of Numbers, our own law told us, cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. Do we need any more evidence that we'd been wrong about Jesus? I mean, God would not curse His Messiah, would He? And yet that was the fact. But then we began to hear rumors. Rumors that He wasn't really dead. Or that He had been dead, but now He was alive. And then some of us saw Him. Some of us actually touched His hands and touched His feet and ate beside Him and knew that He was real. And we knew, even if we didn't see him with our own eyes, we knew it was real because why else would the authorities be so nervous? Why would they be making stories up of, of why the, this, this rumor of a risen Christ existed? And most importantly, why would his disciples, who'd been so full of fear and so clueless before, now were standing in confidence and boldness and preaching and thousands of people changing their lives? We knew something had changed. And we began to believe And that light went on in our hearts and the Holy Spirit entered in and we were never the same again. 
And we began to see that what happened on that Friday on the cross was not defeat. It was actually victory because the enemy dealt him a death blow just like God told us in Genesis 3.15. But he crushed the head of evil once and for all. It wasn't complete yet, but it was on its way to completion. Victory was ours. And at that point, at that point, he began bringing peace to the chaos of every person who believed in him. A little miracle began to happen in the heart of everyone who trusted. A, a little personal resurrection took place in their hearts so that they were never the same again. We began to see that soul by soul, heart by heart, family by family, the world was being changed. And we didn't care that our authorities hated it. We didn't care that the Romans persecuted us. We just wanted to tell people the good news. And so I come back to the question I asked at the beginning. What is your hope? What are you putting your hope in truly? What is that one thing that you devote all your devotion to? The one thing you know you can't live without? I heard a story once. It's not a true story. Don't freak out. But it makes a good point. A man was in prison long ago, one of those unescapable prisons, high walls, razor wire. He came up with a plan to get out. He was friends with the old man who was the, who was the supervisor, the, the prisoner who was the supervisor of the grave diggers, the grave digging crew. And he said to him, you have a young daughter that you love, right? And the man said, yes. He said, I've, I stole a whole lot of money, and most of it I managed to bury, and I know where it is. And I promise you that I will give your daughter every penny of it if you'll just help me get out of here. The old man said, I agree. What is, what is your plan? So the man said, here's what I want you to do. The next time someone in the prison dies and the bell rings, I will lay down on my bed and pretend to be dead. You instruct your grave digging crew to come into my cell and place me in the casket alongside the dead prisoner. And then they bury me. And then you come out after everybody's gone to bed, you come out and dig me up and I'll be outside the walls of the prison at that point, And then I'll be free to go. And I'll give your daughter all that money and we'll both be happy. The old man said, sounds good. So a few nights later, the prisoner heard the bell, the bell that told that said that someone in the jail had died. And so he laid down on his bed and he began to wait. And it wasn't long before the gate or the, or the door of his cell opened and he felt himself being lifted and placed inside the casket. He felt the body of the man next to him. He heard the lid close, felt himself being carried and then lowered then he heard that loud noise of that dirt being shoveled on top of his casket, loud as, as rocks hitting a plate glass window at first, but then more and more muffled until finally he heard nothing. And then he began to wait and wait and wait. And he kept telling himself, the key is to keep your heart rate down so that your breathing is shallow because you don't want to breathe so strongly, so, so fervently that you breathe in all the oxygen and you suffocate. So he was doing his best to keep himself calm, but he kept playing over scenarios in his mind. What if the old man double crosses me? What if, what if the old man gets caught on his way out of the jail and, and arrested? What if, what if the old man forgets he's old? What if, what if I'm out here? What if I suffocate in this casket and, and he feels his heart beat faster and faster and so he knows he's got to calm himself so he manages to stick his hand inside of his pocket and pull out a cigarette lighter. He thinks if I can just, if I can just get some light for a moment, it'll calm me down. And he, 
on the third flick, he gets that lighter lit, and sure enough, he starts to feel himself calm down. And yes, everything's going to be okay. And at the last moment before the light goes out, he turns to the side and he sees the face of the prisoner next to him and recognizes the face of the old man. It's not a true story, okay? But the point of it is, it matters what you put your hope in. It matters what you put your hope in. Wealth goes away. I don't care how shrewd you are. Wealth goes away, and even if you manage to hoard every penny until the day you die, there are no U-Hauls attached to hearses, okay? You can't take it with you. It is a poor thing to hope in. Your status will go away because there's always someone who will knock you off your perch. Politics is cyclical. The, the group that's on top now will be on bottom someday. It, it, it never lasts. As far as people, if you put your hope in a person, don't get me wrong, we are told to love those God has brought into our lives. So love them with every fiber of your being. Enjoy them. Drink in every second you have with them, but don't put your hope in them. Recognize that our relationships with human beings in this world are temporary. You better be planning for the next life with that person because right now, those people won't always be here. Your kids, I hope, you, I hope your kids outlive you, but your, your kids will let you down. And they'll meet somebody else, and that someone else will become more important to, to them than you. And that will devastate you if your hope is in that. There's one person, one thing in all the universe that will never let you down, and that is the one who defeated death, the one who didn't stay in the grave, the one who loved you enough to die in your place and then conquered death for you, crushing the head of the snake as He did it. The one who will come back someday and claim His rightful place as King and redeem this world. Every rock, every tree, every grain of sand, the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea. He is the one to hope in because He's the light that will never die. 